I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Just the other day, I was taking my daily stroll to the allotment and I was captured by the sight of a clump of miniature daffodils called tete-a-tete. These little dwarf plants only really get to about 15 centimetres in height and seeing them inspired me to think about the smaller side of gardening. And being short on space doesn't mean being short on ideas, creativity or inspiration. So in today's episode... We're building terrariums with botanist James Wong. So what you have to remember is exactly what they do. They create a low light, high humidity, and very stable temperature environment for plants. We're hearing about the joy of growing delicate alpines with expert Peter Goodchild. I think it's the sempervivum that really catch children's imagination because they're kind of alien-like with the, how they look. They look like they're from Mars. We'll be speaking to RHS gardening advisor Becky Mealy to work out how best to garden with our little ones. It's coming to the end of the Easter holidays and you're probably running out of things to think about and do. So getting them out into the garden and growing is a good opportunity to get them fresh air and away from the screens. And we're also discovering another hidden horticulturalist with historian Wesley Kerr. You want to know the life story of this guy. You think, oh, well, this could be me in my crocs, in my garden. And it's very, very powerful and inspiring. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS. I'm Guy Barter. And as I mentioned, we're beginning with James Wong on terrariums. Over to him. So people will often say they're obsessed with things, and that word can be used... You know, like, that's a slight exaggeration, but I don't think it's unfair to say that I am obsessed with terrariums. From where I'm sitting now in my living room, I'm looking out onto at least 20 of them, and I spend a good hour or day, if not significantly more, tending to terrariums. What I think is so exciting about them is they're basically a microcosm of a climate that we don't have in our country. It's a warm even-tempered, high-humidity climate. So if you'd like to grow rare ferns from the forest floors of the Andes or carnivorous pitcher plants from the jungles of Borneo, there are loads and loads of species that you would really struggle to grow indoors in a home environment that when you suddenly put in the low-light and high-humidity environment of a terrarium becomes super easy to grow. So maidenhair ferns, some orchids, carnivorous plants... 
So there are lots of top tips to making terrariums, but I would say the most important thing is to realize what they are in the first place, why they were created, and what conditions they give plants. So the terrarium really traces its origin back to Victorian times, where this guy called Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward, he was collecting insects in cases. He was a Victorian naturalist. And he one day discovered that a tiny piece of grass and a fern seemed to generate magically from a tiny bit of soil inside one of his insect glass cases and started to grow. Many of these species couldn't be grown in indoor conditions in Victorian London due to things like drafts, excessive heat, dry air, and even contaminated air, but could be grown in this environment. So what you have to remember is exactly what they do. They create a low light, high humidity, and very stable temperature environment for plants. And those are the conditions favored by plants from tropical rainforests. If you try and grow cacti in a terrarium, plants that need high UV light, really low humidity, and loads and loads of air movement, I promise you, you will fail. You will see cacti and succulent terrariums every day on Instagram and Pinterest, and I promise you, they were made 15 minutes before that photo shoot, because in within two or three weeks, particularly in a sealed terrarium, you'll start to see them suffer. If you want to plant up a terrarium, pretty much use anything else. My other tip is growing media. So once upon a time when I first started with terrariums, I used to use just regular compost inside them. And what I found is that does work pretty well for a while. But over time, that compost starts to break down. And it can also hold a lot and lots of moisture, which can cause fungal infections to start to take hold. So recently, I don't do that at all. What I use is growing media from bonsai growers, which is mineral-based rather than fiber-based. There are lots of different types. I use one called akadama, and that's basically tiny little pieces of clay that have been baked into little granules. And what that allows is really, really free drainage. Uh, it doesn't hold that much water, but that doesn't matter because the sealed terrarium holds that water. And really, anything can be grown into that surface. So we've talked about the type of plants you put in, the type of substrate. I think the other thing to think about with terrariums is they're the type of indoor gardening that you can do anywhere. Like you could do it in a basement flat with no windows, even though plants love light, by simply putting a grow lamp on top of them. What do I mean by a grow lamp? Well, actually, there are specialist bulbs you can buy with the perfect wavelength to grow plants. Plants have preferred wavelengths of light that they need to grow. However, any light that human eyes can see, plants can use. So any white lamp that you can put, even in this common desk lamp, will work on a terrarium. So I'm looking out at a whole bunch of my terrariums and, you know, it's, it's not like kids. You can't pick your favorite. I'd feel bad if I had to pick my favorite terrarium. <laughs> um, but I, I am kind of immature, so I theme my terrarium. So I'm looking at one where I, um, I watched a terrible film called King Kong Skull Island. But the one thing that was incredible about it was the landscapes that they choose to shoot Skull Island at. And they're these spectacular limestone cliffs that come out of the sea in islands 
uh, in Southeast Asia off the coast of places like Vietnam and the Philippines. They're like these fingers of rock that come out completely covered in forest on big pinnacles and there's really dramatic falls in between them. So I've tried to create a similar environment by getting limestone pieces of rock that you can buy in aquascaping shops. There's this stuff called dragonstone that basically looks like a miniaturized version of these limestone cliffs. And I've created these kind of pinnacles and then planted moss and miniature ferns all over them. And, you know, even in the darkest days of winter, when it's cold outside, you can look out on perpetual summer in your own lost tropical island, even if it's in a small fishbowl. That's the amazing thing about the things you can do with plants. Even in the smallest space, you can create that ultimate sense of escape. And I think that's what gardens are. People talk about them as natural. I think they're entirely unnatural. They're theatrical, using natural ingredients. It's about escaping to a perfect paradise, to a perfect view of nature. And with terrariums, you can do that even if you don't have a garden. Lots to try out, thanks to James there. There's something irresistibly cute about little plants, whether it's James's wonderful terrariums or alpine plants. Alpines are little gems that come from mountainous areas, and all winter they huddle down against the Arctic breezes and the snow and the frost, and in spring they flower prolifically. Who can resist them? If you want to grow some in your garden, I happen to know the very person to talk to. Peter Goodchild is the Alpine team leader at RHS Garden Wisley and joins me now. All through the year I like to trot up and visit the display houses and my recollection is that the Alpine year starts in winter or late winter with lots of crocus in particular. Take us through the Alpine year, what kind of things can people expect to see? Yeah, so as you said, we've got the national collection of crocus in flower all the way through December and then into the spring when they come into their like kind of full power. Before that, you have the hepatica collection, which we have quite a special collection of hepatica. We've also got a large collection of narcissus as well. But then after that, you get like your saxifrage and then your primulas, your loisia. We've also got a good collection of orchids. So we've got native orchids in our collection. So not like the tropical orchids that you would see in the in the glass houses. So we have like bee orchids and lesser butterfly orchids. Already then you're kind of getting into the summer. And then from there, you've got like your Sempervivum. I think it's the Sempervivum that really kind of catch children's imagination because they're alien-like with the, how they look. They look like they're from Mars and with their red foliage, their kind of slightly succulent foliage and their kind of long extending flowers. There should always be something new or something of interest in the, the Alpine house. In your book, Peter, what's an alpine? So if you were to look it up, you would find that an alpine is a plant that grows above the tree line on a mountainous region. We at Wisley bend the rules a little bit because we're not a botanical garden. We don't have to stick to those rules of growing everything that grows above the tree line because to create a display like the alpine display house, so the true alpines that you think of, like the cushion plants and stuff, they tend to flower early spring to kind of middle of spring to fill that gap we then bend the rules slightly by adding our meadow bulbs and then kind of our woodland fringe plants like ferns that fills that midsummer interest so that we can give the visitors a good display of plants in the alpine house 
Now, not many people know this, but um, in your yard, you've got potting sheds and cold frames and compost mixing sheds. And all your team in there are experts at mixing compost and potting things up. What are your tips for growing alpines? I mean, the main thing for growing alpines is drainage. In most of our mixes, it's pretty much 50% of what we put in is either grit, so it's a coarse grit, or perlite, so depending on how heavy you want the mix. So like the general alpine mix is a John Innes number two, obviously peat-free. We have one part grit and then one part perlite, but you can replace that perlite with more grit if you want, if you can't get your hands on perlite. So yeah, the main tip for alpines, and I think that's something where people tend to go wrong, is not having enough drainage. And also when you're planting, making sure that you're raising it up and the base of the plant sitting on a little bit of gravel as well. So then if you do overwater it or if it's kind of sat outside in the rain, it's not going to sit wet because alpines can quickly rot off if they're sat on like just onto soil. Have you got any suggestions of easy alpines people can start with? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier with the Sempervivum, I think that's something that sometimes gets overlooked by the alpine enthusiasts, but you've got to start somewhere. And Sempervivum are perfect for that because you have that year-round interest of the foliage, but then these fantastic floral spikes that they come on. And you can kind of really imagine how that when they're growing in their like mountainous cracks, that these spikes would stick out and then the wind would catch them. They're quite easy to look after. As I said, as long as you're getting the drainage right, then they'll happily grow in any pot or trough or in the side of a bed that you want to kind of just add a little bit of interest to. And you'll see that you get offsets of them, which means that you can create some interesting presence for people as well if you want to inspire future alpine gardeners. And then also like things like the saxifrage as well, that you can get some easier to grow ones. And then also like what we've got, like with uh, a few miniature bulbs as well, so you can quite quickly get an interesting trough or pot like as you enter your house. So if you're adding a few bulbs like the Tula Patada or Turkestanica, they're miniature alpine bulbs that do really well partnered with these kind of alpine plants that sit together really well, but also add seasonal interest and then go back into their dormancy. Thank you very much, Peter. That's really kind and really helpful. No worries. It's been an absolute pleasure. Peter's clearly so passionate about what he does. And the green bug can definitely bite from a very young age. My first foray into growing began at the tender age of seven, and I remember it well. I dug a little patch in the back garden. I lived in the country. We had a big garden. I prized out cooch grass, which started a trend that I'm still going on. And I planted some barley and some oats and some wheat from the corn bins and grew a little crop. And from that, my gardening bug has grown and grown. I think it's very important to get the future guy barters started young, which is why I spoke to advisor Becky Mealy for some kid-friendly jobs to be doing right now. It's coming to the end of the Easter holidays and you're probably running out of things to think about and do. So getting them out into the garden and growing is a good opportunity to get them fresh air and away from the screens. And you have still got time for planting potatoes. That's one of my main things that my daughter loves doing. In preparation for this, I said to her, what is your favourite thing that you love doing in the garden since I've subjected you to it for years and years? And she said, digging and planting potatoes. She said she looks forward to doing this every year. It's one of her things that she just likes to do. 
you don't have to have a big board you can grow them in sacks and it's just fun to open that sack and have lots of potatoes that you can then have on the table is very nice for them also it's good to choose things that they like to water so she absolutely loves making mud even still now at 14 so having them grow things like courgettes and pumpkins and runner beans these things love having lots of water during the growing season and over the summer so yeah you can't really give them too much and then also those things like the runner beans they've got a nice big seed for younger children to hold and then they get the dexterity also she's really got into growing house plants of late and she's very good at conning me out of pretty pots now she's a teenager easter is a time that we will be repotting those and getting them sorted because they have done really well but i have had to intervene with her house plants occasionally so having to tread over carefully through the teenage bedroom to water the houseplants occasion because they do get a little bit neglected. You do have to remind them that houseplants do need to be cared for, but it's nice for them to have their own space that they can grow what they want to and actually have a choice. So when Faye was little, we'd have a look at the seeds in the garden centre and say, oh, so which one are we growing to grow this time? fun short-term thing for also Easter themed is cress heads so it's using the shell of an egg that's been boiled nicely cleaned out with cotton wool bud on top and then keep it wet and then you can grow the cress seeds on top and draw a little face of the actual cress man on there then when the seeds grow you can use the cress to make an egg and cress sandwich that's quite a nice fun thing to do One of my favourite things to do with children is grass men. So this is using an old pair of tights with grass seed in it. Then you fill it with compost. Then you tie a knot in the end and use the tail as a wick. You can put buttons on them or kind of make them into like a, a face. Have them sat on a mug is the easiest thing to do. Have water in there and then eventually those grass seed will germinate and then you can cut the hair like the, the hairdressers. Again, they're, they're quite fun and quick to actually grow for children because that's it sometimes with children. They want an instant, this is going to grow. And microgreens at this time of year are quite good for like, then you can cut them and put them as a fancy topping on your food. And the good old avocado seed is always a fun one. My avocado is like three years old now, bless it. I find it's easy to start them off in the airing cupboard. So clean the seed off. Try not to damage it as you're taking it out of the avocado. Have it in some damp kitchen paper and then in a plastic bag so it can kind of sweat there and actually soften the seed case. Put it in the airing cupboard. Occasionally take it out because they, they will get a bit slimy. But eventually what will happen is a nice big fat white root will come out and curl around the seed. When it's got that have it out and then have it onto how you've seen people have them where you've got half in, half out of the water, so the, the roots in. Then the actual shoot will shoot up and then you'll get the leaves and then you can plant it up. I love being outside in the natural world myself and being out in the fresh air. And I think it's just nice for children to respect the environment around them, to learn about the nature around them and actual where the food comes from and there's so many learning aspects of horticulture you could use like you know counting the pots as you're planting things out counting the seeds and even just like you know in the mud 
with a stick you can start to learn to write your name and it's just a fun thing to be in out in nature and also in your garden and it's I mean for me I, I've always grown up outside I've always uh, there's pictures and pictures of me growing up in the garden and I just couldn't imagine a world that you wouldn't have that space and that freedom just to get mucky and play with plants. Now, I really wanted to play you another interview from our Hidden Horticulturist series, where we've been learning about some inspirational but relatively unknown gardeners from the past. In last week's show, broadcaster, historian and horticulturist Wesley Kerr told us about William Kent, an iconic landscape designer from the 1700s. And today, Wesley is back to tell us all about something a little different, a pretty incredible picture painted by the 20th century artist Harold Gilman. It's called The Portrait of a Black Gardener. It portrays a rather handsome, elegant black guy, brown-skinned, wearing a sort of white, slightly dishevelled shirt with a belt, slightly dishevelled trousers, and he's barefoot, but standing on a sort of earthen floor, with terracotta pots behind him, some of them broken, and he's leaning on a spade. In 20th century British art, he's the first black guy who's dominating and the subject of an important major portrait by a major artist who's a gardener. And its history is very, very interesting. So there used to be a wonderful restaurant in Mayfair called Langham's. It may still be there, but it was... Very hip place to go in the sort of 70s, 80s, 90s. And the guy, Peter Langham, had a rather wonderful collection of paintings. And this Gilman was there. And it was on sale at an auction in 2012. And the very inspirational director of the Garden Museum, Christopher Woodward, it was brought to his attention that this painting was on sale. And the Garden Museum is an amazing collection of garden artefacts and garden history but not much pertaining in that era in 2012. There wasn't much in the Garden Museum's collection about the contribution of black people to gardening. And of course, it's a massive contribution throughout history, really. So some of it was a forced contribution through slavery. Some of it was through agriculture and small holdings. But obviously, black people have gardened since time immemorial, and they've been hugely important to the horticultural history of the United Kingdom, of the Commonwealth, of the United States. So Christopher Woodward, when he saw that this painting was coming up for auction, he had about a week to get £130,000 together. So he quickly approached the Heritage Lottery Fund, now called the National Lottery Heritage Fund, where I was chairman of the London Committee. So we pledged some money for it. He approached the Art Fund and the Monument Trust. They also produced some money, as did two private donors, and crucially, the Royal Horticultural Society president, Elizabeth Banks, the first woman president, a marvellous woman, she agreed that the Royal Horticultural Society would give a contribution. So at the auction, there was competition from other bidders, but the Garden Museum was able to acquire the painting in 2012. And it's one of the most popular paintings in their display. The word iconic is overused. But if an icon is something on a wall that you admire and which makes you think deep spiritual thoughts, I think that this qualifies as an icon. I think it's a very, very powerful image and I find it very inspiring. It speaks 
to the contribution, often an unsung contribution, by so many black people to, to horticulture. And we know that there are so many black practitioners in horticulture. You don't necessarily see them in large numbers at shows like the Chelsea Flower Show or at Wisley, but I think that's going to change. I think it's very important that people should see themselves represented in art and in art galleries. And I think that this portrait by Howard Gilman has that representative function, but it's just a very, very powerful portrait. I think it's a very wonderful picture, which kind of reminds me of myself gardening. You don't often see images of black gardeners, or you certainly didn't when I first saw this painting about a decade ago. So what drew me to this portrait of a black gardener was it's a wonderful portrait in a period that I like, and it's a black chap doing something that I love doing myself. So I was, I suppose, seeing myself in the portrait and relatives and friends who love to garden. I think it's very important when you go to an art gallery that you're uplifted or when you look at paintings online, I think it's very important that you should feel a sense of upliftment, a sense of connection. And I think it's a very fine work of art. I think that's the important thing to say about it. And there are lots of stories told about white gardeners. So you look at histories of gardening and most of the people that are written about, if it's a history of gardening in this country, or United States, they're probably mostly white people. But actually that's kind of missing out an awful lot of the history of horticulture, not only in this country, but throughout what was the empire. So I think that this picture makes a connection, tells a universal story, is uplifting, and it's a fine work of art. Wesley Kerr. If you'd like to see the portrait for yourself, head to the Garden Museum in London, which is set to reopen on the 17th of May. That brings us to the end of this week's show. For more on the topics we've explored today, visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast or check out the show notes. But until next time, it's goodbye from me, Guy Barter. Thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, 
you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.